Hi, welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. I think mostly Americans agree that there's some kind of crisis of authority going on in the United States. Um, you know, but it's it's really written into liberal democracy, uh, a liberal secular democracy. And I don't mean liberal in the sense that the Democrats are liberal. I mean liberal in the 18th century French Revolution sense of the word, uh, about liberty, that human beings make their own choices, that real authority comes from the consent of the governed. And so in our legislature, as it works on its best day, uh, the majority rules in the House and the Senate, and when signed by the president, it becomes a law. Doesn't matter really what the majority thinks about it. I mean, the minority thinks about it. The majority rules. But you know, that's broken down, especially with the deadlock in Congress. You have to admit that they've taken some action in the last year to help address uh, some of the economic fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic. But still, there's some disturbing trends in our government. How about the use of executive orders? The idea that the president gets elected and immediately he starts just writing what will be laws for his term as president. And I say his term as president because if you've been reading the papers, President Biden went and started removing executive orders. He didn't, um, he didn't invent that. Uh, president Trump had removed the executive orders instituted by President Obama, who made a lot of use of executive orders. Recently, uh, President Biden has removed the Mexico City policy, which is, involves use of federal funds and overseas um, aid uh, for uh, paying for uh, women's abortions. But it isn't just the legislature, legislature and the executive branch. How about the judicial branch? You know, when five out of four lawyers make major decisions um, for the government, or even like in Roe versus Wade, when it was seven out of nine lawyers, um, that says that according to the Constitution of the United States, everyone ha every woman has a right to an abortion. Well, that clearly is not in the Constitution. They made up this notion of the penumbra. And as soon as Roe versus Wade became law, the idea of the penumbra was dropped like a uh, hot potato. In fact, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which was a decade or more later, they changed the basis for the uh, constitutional power grab by saying that really it's the Commerce Clause in the Constitution that allows uh, the uh, federal government to regulate, um, to regulate abortion. Uh, but still the idea that uh, people have the right to destroy life. Uh, you know, there is, the, the, it tied up into it is these, again, liberal ideas of what it means to be a human being. Um, you know, the, no one, I think, questions that from conception to death, it's a human being. But the Constitution talks about persons. And so when you put person against human being, that you can be a human being but not a person, because all of us are formally uh, uh, fetuses, right? But apparently at some point we weren't a person, but then we became a person. But you know, it's been a game that the United States, the liberal government, that uh, that 
confers on its uh, populations the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Remember, they played the same game with African slaves, where African slaves were something like two-thirds or three-quarters of a, of a human person. Native people were, again, something less than fully a human person. And so you know the story about all of that. I think it's interesting when we talk about uh, not dealing with the long shadow of racism in our country. And at the heart of it is this fight about what's the difference between a human and a person, overlapping realities that seem to boil down to a person's ability to think thoughts, uh, make plans, and carry them out, which uh, mostly infants can't do, whether they're born or not. Well, anyway. Uh, it isn't just there that there's this crisis of authority. What do you think about how the bureaucracy in our country and world is operated? Um, the World uh, Health Organization or the Center for Disease Control. I mean, when you look at all the cacophony of voices out there talking about uh, what we do to prevent these surges, and we've had three major surges in just the last, well, less than a year, um, that uh, that says something about the expertise of scientists and administrators. And they have lost some credibility in the country, is my judgment, that they really know what they're doing. People want to believe that there's someone out there that can keep them safe. But obviously, there are limits even to that. And crisis of authority. How about this thing with the bishops, Cardinal Supich and uh, Archbishop uh, Gomez, the president of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. The Pope puts out his statement um, uh, congratulating President Biden. The Conference of Catholic Bishops puts out another one, um, which is very critical of his, his stance on abortion, which ought to be criticized. And then Cardinal Supich uh, publicly um, criticizes Archbishop Gomez for putting out the USCCB statement without, without talking to the rest of the bishops. He consulted just a handful of bishops. And so, wow, there we are. And isn't it a great gospel? And it's a great weekend because Jesus is teaching with authority, not like the scribes and Pharisees. The authority Jesus has is something very different. So let's turn from our troubles, uh, the crisis of authority in our own country and everywhere, and turn to the real source of all authority, God. We are still in the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And wow, Mark, it's like a Steve McQueen movie. Mark just starts off with the action Jesus. Um, Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. A voice crying in the desert, make straight the way of the Lord. John the Baptist starts baptizing. Jesus comes to be baptized. Jesus goes out into the desert where he's tempted by Satan, if you remember. And he overcomes those temptations. Uh, man does not live by bread alone, but every word from the mouth of God. And he comes out and he calls his disciples, which was last week. Now he and the disciples are uh, walk into the uh, synagogue. And what are they confronted by after Jesus teaches? 
Um, and people ask about his authority and they say, wow, this guy teaches with authority. Well, remember that in the Jewish religion, the temple is where the priests were in Jerusalem. And that's where sacrifice was being offered. In the villages were the, were the synagogues. And in the synagogues, there might be somebody who really understands the Old Testament, the scriptures, the Torah, and he would read. There would be something from the Torah. And then the second reading would usually be something from the prophets or the histories. Uh, Jesus is clearly reading from the second reading um, when he's talking about Isaiah and freeing people. Um, and then as he's looking around, he's challenged not by the uh, other villagers, but he's challenged by this uh, unclean spirit. And do you remember what the unclean spirit says to him? It says, uh, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Well, that's an interesting reference because he doesn't call him the Messiah, doesn't call him the Son of God. He calls him the Holy One of God. And I think that may be the only time in Scripture that Jesus is referred to like that. It's the one time I'm uh, presently aware of. You can make me presently aware of other ones, but I think that's it. And it's a reference to Psalm 106, uh, verse 16. And it's a reference to Aaron, who is called the Holy One of God. Do you remember Aaron is Moses' brother, and he's the first and true priest of Israel? And so when Mark refers, when this demon, out of his mouth, comes this reference to being the Holy One of God, well, um, it's this Jesus as priest, remember, prophet and king, but priest, this other identity that's there, uh, that Jesus intercedes uh, to deliver people from their sins of the domination of evil. And then do you remember what, um, what the demon says next? Have you come to destroy us? Well, that's an interesting statement because if you remember, and no doubt you do, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, Adam and Eve fall. Do you remember? Adam is punished because he's got to work uh, and he farms and all he gets out of the earth is thorns and thistles. And his poor wife is being dominated by uh, Adam and she'll bring children out in pain. But then God makes a promise to Eve. And here's what the promise is in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. They will strike at your head while you strike at their heel. Well, they're both dangerous blows, right? Crushing the serpent's head will kill the serpent. But it's going to happen through the death of the person that does it because a poisonous serpent stripes at the heel. That's how you die. Well, the point of it is, is the serpent, the demon, is referring to this prophecy in the book of Genesis that the son of the woman, the new Adam, uh, that he is going to crush evil in the world. And this is a major identity for Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, his power over the spiritual world. We think of him as a healer, right? Uh, he brings people back from the dead. He heals the blind. He makes the lame walk. Clearly, he has power over diseases. That is power over the natural world. There's no way to explain Jesus, why people were attracted to him, without recognizing that these miracles were a reality. He did these things. But in Mark, there's a special prominence to Jesus 
and his power over unclean spirits. You know, we say demons, but the word used in Greek is panoima. It's the same word we use for the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is a clean spirit, the Holy Spirit, uncreated, uh, the Godhead. Uh, demons are created an unclean spirit. They're disconnected uh, from their maker. And so Mark 1, chapter, uh, verse 21 this demon calls him the Holy One of God, and if you come to destroy us. Then you go to Mark 5, verse 1, and that's the story of the Gerasene demoniac. Remember, Jesus crosses the sea, they get out, and it's dark, and they come into a cemetery, and there's this possessed man that nobody can hold. Uh, he's broken out of shackles. And remember, Jesus talks in the Gospel of Mark about plundering um, Taking away the possessions of the strong man must be a stronger man if you can go to the devil's house and take what he has, right? I mean, that's how Jesus talks about who he is. He takes people out of Satan's thrall. Mark chapter 7, verse 24. Do you remember? It's a non-Jewish woman. It's the Syrophoenician woman who comes to Jesus. And her daughter is troubled by an unclean spirit. And Jesus says, we don't give the, the food of the children to the dogs. Oh, that poor woman. And she says, Lord, even the dogs get the crumbs from the table. That's gospel's Mark, Mark's gospel. And Jesus never even meets the daughter. He just says, that demon has left her. Go home to your daughter. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 is the possessed boy. Do you remember? He's possessed, and the dad asks him, please help my son, because the demon throws him into the fire, and he just can't resist it. And uh, Jesus asks, do you believe? And the man says, dad says, Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief, which is a great prayer a fractured nature of faith. It's that fractured nature that human beings have to offer to God. And of course, the boy is, is freed from possession. But it's not over. Mark 9, chapter 48, the disciples point out that there's this other exorcist out there casting demons out in Jesus' name. And he says, no one who uh, speaks in my name can, can be evil to us. Now, what's this all about? Do you remember? It's about this authority. There's a crisis of authority in Israel because you have just your neighbor telling you what the scriptures mean. The chief priests, they're not popular. King Herod isn't even really a Jew. It just, it's a messed up culture. Crises of authority are always about human culture disconnected from the authority of God. And so in this Mark chapter one, do you remember they say, wow, who is this guy with such authority? It's 11 chapters later, Mark 11, chapter 27, when the priest and the scribe questions Jesus' authority. Who is this guy? And the ultimate statement, of course, will be the resurrection. You know, the crisis of authority, and I talked about the crisis of authority in our own country, and a lot of it is because there's such a division about what authority means. You know, power is that you get your gang together and you have more knives, you have more clubs than somebody else. And there is kind of an authority, a bullying authority that is so degrading, right? But what happens if a significant part of your population, you know, maybe it's not a huge significant part, but there are people who think that human life has no more significance 
than a bowl of sugar. We're just chemicals. Um, what they miss is this narrative in Mark that's so clear in the story of Jesus, the exorcist, that there's two kingdoms at war, that there's a crisis in this world where we are at war between the kingdom of God and uh, the ruler of this world, which is very familiar to, to um, Christian listeners. You know, Christians can be tempted by materialism also. Uh, we worry about the vaccine. We worry about the economy. And it's not just that these things are unimportant, because they're not unimportant. They're important. They're just not ultimately important. You know, and that is St. Paul's point when he's talking about marriage. So I'd like to take a moment, and I'd like to turn to 1 Corinthians and the great St. Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, St. Paul is very concerned about marriage. He's concerned about marriage because the master was concerned about marriage and family. You probably remember again in the Gospel of Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Do you remember the Pharisees come to Jesus who believes in the, not the Pharisees, the Sadducees, come to Jesus because Jesus is preaching the resurrection. And the Sadducees ask this question, well, you know, what's there's this woman, her husband dies without leaving her kids, so the brother marries her, and then the next brother, then the next brother, and on and on and on. Do you remember the story? It's about Leverite marriage. And then the smart-alecky question is, well, uh, whose wife will she be in the world to come? And that's Jesus says, you people are very much mistaken. And the world to come will live like angels. Um, people won't be given in marriage, and they won't... Um, uh, take anybody in marriage. A man takes a woman in marriage in the ancient world. The woman is given in marriage. And this idea of give, uh, taking a wife and a wife giving herself is really at the heart of ancient culture. It's why Jesus is so revolutionary, because among some of his closest followers were women. And so St. Paul is very much the, the, the follower, the disciple of Jesus. And no less so or no more so than in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In verse 3 of that chapter, if you, if you go back and read it, it says that husbands um, have authority over their wife's body. And the wife, get this, has authority over the man's body. Hey, they're equals in marriage, according to St. Paul. And this goes right back to Jesus' teaching about uh, the problem of Genesis. You know, the idea, and we started out this way, where Eve falls, Adam falls, and so now Adam's got to make his work uh, living in the world uh, with thorns and thistles, and Eve's going to be dominated by her husband, and there's this promise that uh, the child of Eve will destroy the serpent. That's uh, God's curse on the serpent. Well, what follows out of that is this whole understanding of the relationship between uh, man and woman, which kind of dominated the ancient world in and outside of Israel. Who's in control, right? Um, how different is it when you say that the wife has authority over the man's body the man has authority over his wife's body. It's about 
fidelity in marriage because it's in that chapter of uh, chapter 10 in Mark that Jesus says, in the beginning, man was made for woman and woman was made for man. And so this idea that Paul has, that he gets from the Lord, that for the baptized, this curse coming out of the fall in Genesis 3 doesn't apply to Christians. We're supposed to live in the pre-lapsarian state, of lapsarian to elapsed from God's grace. That's why marriage is a sacrament, because it points to the restoration of the original dignity of man and woman. St. John Paul II in his Theology of the Body uh, really uh, goes uh, into great depth understanding these stories and what the life of grace does uh, in marriage and why marriage is a sacrament. But he's not the first. Uh, the first is St. Paul coming right up how, how Jesus talks about marriage. And you have to see the move Jesus has made that man and woman are side by side as they were just the moment before they met the serpent. Except now they're once again walking with their Savior because they encounter him in the Eucharist and in the Word of God and in the body of Christ, which is the church. And so uh, with Paul in marriage, that is why he writes chapter 7 the way that he does. Do you remember last week um, he said, um, you know, if you're married, you shouldn't, you shouldn't live like you're unmarried. If you're mourning, you should live like you're not mourning. If you're, if you're rejoicing, live like you're not rejoicing. And at the heart of it was a sense of detachment because that the struggles that we have in this world are going away. Uh, and so we have to look at that the resurrected life is present now, but not fully yet. This is the, the great paradox of Christianity that the life of grace is present in Christian marriage, but it's pointing towards something greater, and it's the union of Christ and his church. And so here's what I tell people, because I think it's the best way to think about marriage. Blessed is the woman who in her husband meets God's love for her. Blessed is the man who in his wife meets God's love for him. The true source of love, this union between God and the church, present in marriage. But you have to see it for what it is. The, the first sign, the first sacrament of the restored nature of humanity. And so from last week to this week, it's just the very next line as we keep working through 1 Corinthians starting at chapter 7, verse 32. So brothers and sisters, I should like you to be free of anxieties. An unmarried man is anxious about the things of the world, how he may please the Lord, because he is focused on the world to come. It's a prophetic stance. But a married man is anxious about the things of this world, how he may please his wife, and he's divided. Because even if it's a sacrament, well, we all recognize that a sacrament is made of uh, material items and forms of this world, that the life of grace is present in it, but it's always on the, under the forms and appearances of this world. 
So then an unmarried woman or a virgin, a parthenos, a young girl, is anxious about the things of the Lord. They want to please God so that they may be holy in both body and spirit. Because a woman is the same heir to the life of grace that a man is. But he says a married woman, on the other hand, is anxious about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And I'm telling you this for your own benefit, not to impose restraint upon you, but for the sake of propriety and adherence to the Lord without distraction. Well, St. Paul, he was a celibate. The scholars really disagree about whether he's married and perhaps a widower. Later in chapter 9 in Corinthians, he says he has the same rights as Cephas, uh, Peter, right? Who he says travels with his wife, who is a believer. And so Peter is living not a celibate life, but a married life. Although there's other references in scripture to the Adelpha Gunicae, which is the uh, sister wife. That is, uh, it's this marriage of uh, mutual care uh, where the uh, bishop, apparently, or the priest, is giving his care to the church, but he has a woman that cares for him. Uh, what they would call in the modern Catholic circles the mystical marriage. Um, and so there's clearly the same struggle in the early church with all this that there is now. You know, we have all our own struggles over the celibate priesthood. But let's not forget what the witness of the celibate is. The witness of the celibate is to witness to the love of God which transcends the relationships of this world, but is made present in a relationship in this world. So for the priest, we're supposed to love our parents like you love a, a spouse. But I think if you're uh, being alert, right, that the same kinds of problems exist with the priest and his parish as between a husband and a wife. So we should have some mercy on each other, right? Because we're all working uh, in cooperating with grace, trying to be who God made us to be. But we shouldn't lose sight of, of the power of this authority that when we are trying to live devout lives as Catholic married people or a Catholic priest, it's because we're trying to live this mystery that uh, Christ and his authority talks about. In Mark 1, two worlds meet, the material world and the spiritual world. And it's this clash between God dominating the demon in Mark 1. And so the two worlds meet very visibly there. But St. Paul's point is they also meet in marriage, you know, that uh, we live in this world both an eye towards the next. And it helps us to love and value what's in this world. So anyway, I'd like to bring this all to a conclusion. So hang in there. So the crisis of authority, there's no crisis about Jesus' authority. But clearly, the leaders of his time were challenged by Jesus. And I think it's the same kind of challenge that we have in our own times and why people struggle with Jesus. Because Jesus calls us to think about the moral decisions we make, how we live our marriages, our priesthood, what we do every day, and what kind of person it makes us. To live under the authority of God is to live with one foot in this world and one in the next. You know, Jesus showed his power over the natural world 
through his healings, his power over the spiritual world through his work as an exorcist. But you got to believe that a human being is something more than a cup of sugar, just a collection of uh, chemicals. Because Jesus says we're more than a cup of sugar. He said we're more than many sparrows. But as I keep pointing out, all the roads in the New Testament lead back to Genesis and the and the uh, promise that God made to the serpent. And so when you think that Jesus strikes at the serpent's head and destroys, but the serpent kills Jesus, the image of the cross is the fulfillment of the prophecy made in chapter Genesis 3, verse 5, that that is what brings about the salvation of the world. And the great sign of it is the restoration of marriage, uh, the connection between man and woman. Remember, Eve was taken from the side of Adam. Do you remember that? That's why Jesus says that in marriage they become one flesh. They're reunited. And a humanity is made whole, male and female in marriage. And that somehow that's a sign of what the intimacy and the hope of heaven is, that our whole human community is healed. Um, at least that's what St. Paul believed, and he believed it because the Lord taught it to him. And St. Paul, John the Baptist, and Jesus lived lives as celibates in witness to the power of the world that's coming. So pray for celibates, and let's pray that celibates pray for married people. And let's see what kind of authority we can generate by the example of how we live our life and live the gospel. So this is Father John Arnold. This has been Oral Valley Catholic. Thank you.